The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So if you have a Bible, open it, excuse me, to Acts chapter 18, and let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, um, and thank you for your, not only for your word, but thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you would come, O Holy Spirit, and dwell within us. and and that we become living stones of the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What a privilege, what an honor. Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh. And then Jesus, you died, you were buried for us, you rose from the dead, the first to arise in resurrection power and glory. And now all who believe and trust in you have been given the right, the authority to become the children of God. (laughs) Father, we welcome you. We thank you. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Abba, you're our daddy. We are your sons and daughters. And we thank you that we can be in your house, that we can worship together. Thank you for the freedoms that we have. We pray that we might hear Well, the Spirit would say to us, Lord, I believe that you have a word that is is an amazing truth uh, filled with biblical truths that are for us right now. What what all of us are facing, what we're looking at, what we are going through in, in our lives right now, this is a word from the throne of God in heaven. It is a word of life, word of encouragement, a word of comfort, a word of healing, a word of deliverance, a word from the King of Kings. Oh, how we honor you and thank you. And may it be planted deep within our hearts. We want to mingle everything we hear with faith. Lord, we believe in you. We trust in you. We embrace every promise that you want to give and to share with us tonight. And then, Lord, our greatest desire is to obey you. We want to, we want to follow you We have decided to follow Jesus, and we want to obey you in everything they would lead and guide us into. So we give all this time into your hands in Jesus' wonderful name we pray and ask all these things, and everyone said, amen. Okay, so I want to begin with where we're going uh, in the study tonight, kind of the, this is the, it's really the title of the message, which is Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. We're going to look at the last verses of Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28, but that we are now being called to fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Uh, There's a lot of things going on in the world. There are a lot of things uh, that I would say are trying to divert our attention and our gaze from having our eyes on the Lord. So what, I, what I'm hearing from this Bible study, and you know, so I get to read, prepare all week, study, read different commentators, get into the, uh, the Greek language, the history, the background, and we're going to share all of that with you. But then I'm saying, Lord, what is the heart of this message? And this is what I heard from the Lord. He, he said, son, I want you, and I want everyone that is at Maranatha Chapel, and I'm calling for my church and my bride in this day and in this hour and in this season and in this time, keep your eyes fixed on me. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look away because of all the craziness that is going on. So can I hear an amen on that? We're ready to keep our eyes on Jesus. So so, uh, chapter 18 Paul is basically now, he's ended his second missionary journey, traveling around the Mediterranean, planting churches all over ancient Europe and the Roman Empire, and he's going to now make his way back, ultimately, to where he started from, which is Antioch. He's going to make quite a time in Ephesus on the way, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But he's making his way home to the church in Antioch. He's got a lot of great stories, testimonies uh, to share. But now beginning in verse 18, so chapter 18, 
verse 18, it says, so Paul still remained a good while. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now, this is very interesting. I want to take a moment and just look at this verse. Um, what, what's going on here? Well, Paul has ended, he, he had three missionary journeys. So where we are in Acts 18, uh, he's kind of wrapping up his second missionary journey in all these places he has started churches. He's getting ready to go home to Antioch, share with them all the stories, all the answers to prayer, all the churches that he has begun. And then he will go one third time. Uh, around Europe before the Lord finally takes him home. But at this particular moment in time, now he's had a lot of battles, he's had a lot of scars, <laughs> literally. He was stoned to death, he was beaten with rods, he was thrown in prison, he's had people blaspheming and yelling and arguing, and everywhere he goes, there's, there's a ruckus that Paul is in the midst of. And what's interesting here is it says, you know, we read it as uh, the Gentiles. Uh, you know, Americans in modern time, and he's like, what, he made a vow and he shaved all his hair off? What, what is that all about? Well, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down this cross-reference. We're not gonna go there tonight, but you can go and read it on your own sometime. In the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapter six, verses one through 21. Numbers six, one through 21. There's an interesting uh, set of verses that talk about when you could make a vow, a vow to God. It was a voluntary vow. So look, when Paul, you know, this is post-resurrection and Paul knows that we're saved by grace through faith. So he's not abandoning grace because he's now doing this Jewish law. Uh, he's not going back under the law. It was a voluntary thing. It was not a matter of salvation but it was a personal devotion to the Lord. And this particular vow, called a Nazarite vow, could be taken voluntarily for any individual at any time who wanted to dedicate themselves and devote themselves for a concentrated period of time, about 30 days, to the Lord. It was like you wanted to just kinda get away from your routine, get away from the worldly life, and you know, all of the things here. So that's why you would, and by the way, it could be taken by men or women. And it's like, you just, Lord, Lord I wanna take the next 30 days, I wanna just go to heaven in my mind and in my heart. I wanna pray, I wanna seek you, I wanna get my eyes off this world, I wanna dive into the kingdom of heaven. So it was a desire to completely yield yourself to God. The word nazir in Hebrew means to separate or to consecrate. So the idea is, you know, so what's the deal with, you know, you don't shave uh, your hair or you just, you let it grow? Well, the idea is that instead of, you know, modern terms, every day I'm looking at myself, combing my hair, looking good, you're taking 30 days and don't mess with your hair. Don't worry about what you look like, even in an ancient bronze mirror. Don't think about your appearance here on earth, but now take your face before the throne of your Father in heaven. Secondly, we're not to drink wine. Now, the wine was okay, obviously, in biblical times, and in fact, there wasn't always good water, so wine was kind of part of the you know, routine even of people's weekly, uh, getting some you know, nourishment in them. Uh, and fluids, but, but even on the weak basis that it was in ancient times, it did have an influence upon you, mind, psychologically, and so forth. So the idea was, okay, I'm not gonna pay attention to what I look like for 30 days. I'm gonna go and put my face before God. Secondly, I don't want anything from the fruit of the vine that might you know, mess with my emotional, psychological feelings. I don't want any worldly stimulus. I want to be totally set apart for God that whatever moves me mentally, spiritually, and emotionally is purely, I know, from the Holy Spirit. So you follow where this is going. The other thing was, 
Don't come near a dead body. So you're like, wow, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I don't usually go around dead bodies. But in ancient times, they buried people all over the place. There were graves everywhere and stones and all of that kind of thing. And, you know, if you, so you would stay away from walking through even a graveyard. And again, the idea is that represents the flesh. It represents decay. It represents the consequences of sin. So you're like, look, I, I want to be in a, in a holy place that is totally separated from the curse and death and sin and all of that and totally consecrated to God. Now here's what's interesting. In the Old Testament, there are three characters that apparently took not only this Nazarite vow at various times in the life, some of them went even beyond what the Nazarite vow was. And number one, Samuel, the prophet. Samuel was a man so uh, where, where I'm going with all this, I'm going to be describing the Nazarite vow, those who took it, and so forth. But where I want to go in just a moment is I want to challenge us to do our own personal vow to the Lord. Not that it has to be exactly this way, but what I'm about to share with you tonight, I believe that where this world is let alone what I believe is coming the rest of this year and on into the next year, we, we, are, we are in a place where we need to hear God, seek the Lord, hear his voice, and, and you have to have some intentionality of devotion so that God can open the windows of your soul, speak to us so that we can hear his voice and he can prepare us so that no matter what comes, Nothing will shake our faith. Nothing will shake our foundation. Nothing will get our eyes taken away from being fixed on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the hope of his coming. Amen? So Samuel was a prophet. Do you want to hear the voice of God? Paul in the New Testament writes, now that the Holy Spirit is inside of every believer, he goes, I would that you all prophesied. Basically, that's where the word of God comes alive and he speaks it into your heart or you speak, uh, he speaks through you to bring a word of comfort, edification or uh, encouragement to others. So there's Samuel. There's another interesting character in the Old Testament and this one you'll really get the Nazarite vow because he did it basically his whole life until the end. His name was Samson. Samson. Samson was told, don't just do this for a month but you have been called by God to do it for your life. Do not touch your hair. And you know the whole story of Samson and this strength, God. It's like God took one man and said, I wanna make one Nazarite vow consecrated guy to show all of the enemies of Israel my power and my glory. And I don't think it was because Samson necessarily looked like Hercules. Samson might have looked like a kind of average guy, but when the Spirit of God came upon him, you went, oh, wow. That's the power of God. And Samson was known for that. So again, my encouragement for you and I to think about, I believe this summer is a good time in your own way as the Lord leads you to make uh, a, a vow of consecration of, Lord, I want to get serious with you. I want to go deeper with you. And you know, the reality is I know that many of you have already been doing that. And God has used this last year to kind of shake us up and say, you know, I think I'm going to drive and get closer to the Lord. And that's why you're in church. That's why you're meeting in your homes and why you're fellowshipping with other believers. The third one is from the New Testament that took a Nazarite vow, and his name is none other than John the Baptist. John the Baptist had this Nazarite vow, and he was called to prepare the way. So think about this. Prophetic comes when we make a vow of commitment. Prophecy comes when we make a vow of commitment. And then preparation for the very kingdom of heaven. So I wanna take us to a verse, familiar verse, but, but kind of my life verses. I don't know if I've told you that or not, but it's Romans chapter 12, 
verses 1 and 2. This is kind of the New Testament version of the Nazarite vow that each one of us can take. So let's read this out loud together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I love this. I beseech you. He says, I am begging you. Basically, therefore, means everything I've shared with you from Romans chapter 1 through 11, which is a lot. It's like Paul is reaching through to every one of his brothers and sisters and pulling them close to his face and saying, therefore, I'm begging you, I'm urging you as your spiritual older brother or spiritual father that you would give your bodies to God as an act of worship. All of a sudden now, we don't, we don't have, you know, the altar is you. The fire for the altar and sacrifice is your burning heart. You are yielding everything that you have and are, spirit, soul, and body to him. And then he says, when you begin realizing that everything in my life is, is a praise and a worship to God, and as I yield to him, God will prove, which means by evidence, that people can see that as I live out the will of God for my life, everyone will, around you will go, wow, that guy's following God. That girl's devoted to God. That power, uh, that spirit, that peace, that confidence, that strength and joy, that's from God. And they won't give you the glory and credit. They'll say, they'll notice you've kind of gotten out of the way, but you're so yielded that what they are feeling and experiencing is God himself, as it was through Samuel, as it was through Samson, and as it was through John the Baptist. People were not in awe of them, but in awe of the God who was able now somehow to channel his power and presence in and through them. And do not be conformed to this world. That means don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed. I love this. We don't have to wait till heaven to become heavenly beings. We can right here, right now, the word transform is the Greek word metamorphosis. And it's literally change. It is, you know, that beautiful transformation from the moth to the butterfly the caterpillar to the butterfly. And it's a, this is, in other words, we can begin entering into the heavenly glories of the world to come and the powers of the kingdom to come can begin flowing into us right here and now. How many are excited about that? Amen. How? How are we transformed? Trans, by the way, same root word used of Jesus when he was transfigured. Same word, root, that, that we can experience that by the renewing of your mind. I cannot ex- uh, you know, overemphasize how powerful it is for you, my brothers and sisters, me, all of us, to be in the word of God daily, every day. Not just Sundays, not hearing just Bible studies on Radio and tape, that's all good, but, but where you are in the word and you are hearing the word and letting God make the word come alive to you and speak to you because there's power in the word of God. When you believe it, when you trust in it, when you express faith in it, declare it, live in it, then it becomes alive and transformation happens by the renewing of your mind that you can prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Okay, so partly how we do that is the next scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses four and five. So this is what you learn how to do to make Romans 12, one and two come to pass. Let's read it out loud. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity 
through the obedience of Christ. Amen? Amen. This is possible. This is not just for, you know, the ministers, the evangelists, the super saints. This is available to the whole body of Christ. You can take every thought. It's not beyond your capacity. Every single thought. Now, we can't control our thoughts. And unfortunately, we can't control the world throwing weird thoughts and attitudes and you know, ideas, all the crazy stuff. And then the enemy's out there throwing fiery darts at us left and right. But here's what we can do. We can take every single thought and bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not have power. We don't let it land. No curse, no accusation, no weirdness, no worldliness. No, we take every thought captive and we bring it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes, I paid for it. It's done, it's buried, it's under the blood, it has no power, it has no grip, it cannot take root in you, done. And then it gets easier, by the way, it's not easy in the beginning. It's like, oh my gosh, every day is like step at a time. But you, it does become easier with time and with practice. And all of a sudden you're like, bing, bing, bing. And then, here's the cool part, you start learning how by the renewing of your mind, as you're meditating on the word, Rather than the enemy coming and bugging you, your meditation and worship and enjoyment and the glory of God coming upon you begins to bug the demons and they go screaming, yelling away, far as they can get away from you. Hello? Taking every thought captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Wow, that was just the first verse. Okay, let's go on. Verses 19 through 23. Here it is, fix your eyes on Jesus, and now I have in brackets, between the straits. I'm gonna explain this to you. This is gonna be new uh, for many of you. But verse 19, it says, and so then he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and he went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he's kind of revisiting all the churches he had planted on his way back, ultimately to where it all started, in Antioch. But he says, look, I want to get back. Remember the, the Nazarite vow that Paul took? And uh, so what, what I'm going to tie this together with you guys is basically kind of starting, the, you know, right now and into this, the next few weeks, I want to challenge all of us to say, Lord, I want to consecrate uh, this, this next few weeks to you, to devote myself to you, to seek you, to cry out to you, to press into you. That's what I want to challenge each of you to consider doing. Um, here's something that's very interesting. Paul said, I want to make it back to Jerusalem. So the end of the Nazarite vow, once you did all this consecration, and, and partly it was to say thank you, uh, you know, wow, Lord, you've been with me. I could have died. I was left for dead when they stoned me, but you kept me alive and they beat me up, but I'm still alive and I'm still ministering and you brought encouragement. Now I got new friends, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. I got Silas and Timothy. I got spiritual sons and daughters and oh Lord, you're just so, I just thank you so much. I can't wait. I want to be. So the end of the Nazarite vow was you go to Jerusalem and you, you give an offering to the Lord. It's, it's an, you're just saying, thank you God for your faithfulness. Thank you for your faithfulness. It is so good when you consecrate and you say, Lord, I want to get closer to you, that, that you begin part of the consecration and drawing near to God is actually beginning to thank him for how good he's been to you, how faithful he has been, how he has answered your prayers, how he has watched over you, how he has protected you, how he has just 
followed you with blessings. So it's a, you know, part of drawing near to God is thanking him, worshiping him, giving him the praise and the glory. Lord, to God be the glory, great things you have done. Amen? So that's part of what Paul wants to do. Now, I want to tell you something that is starting tomorrow. Um, tomorrow is, is a, an inter- it begins an interesting three-week period in the Jewish calendar. Uh, tomorrow is, I think I mentioned this last week, I think I did, uh, but we're in the biblical month called Tammuz. Everybody say Tammuz, Tammuz. So tomorrow is Tammuz 17. So the, the Jewish calendar has their, you know, we have the Gregorian calendar, but then there's also, you know, the Hebrew calendar. What's fascinating is probably most of us, most of the time you read, and then it was in the third month, you know, and then they did whatever. And we're like, what third month? We don't know the Hebrew calendar. But every, everything is there. There's no mention of a date or a month that is not important. Everything in the Bible means something. So... Tomorrow, which is Sunday, happens to be in the, and I learned this from our Jewish, Messianic, believing brothers and sisters in Jesus, but tomorrow is Tammuz 17. And what day was that? This was a very exciting day. It was supposed to be anyway. It is the day that the people have been waiting down at the bottom of the mountain. Moses has gone up to the mountain to hear from God And it was on the 17th day of Tammuz that Moses came down the mountain and he had two things. He had the Ten Commandments that were written with the finger of God. How would you like to see stone that had writing on it that you could read and it had been written by the finger of God? And secondly, he had a set of plans that God had given him in the 40 days on the top of the mountain, he said, this is the tabernacle I want you to build because it's kind of like heaven. So follow exactly the plans I showed you because I'm going to expose all of my dear children when they see the tabernacle and the furniture, they're going to get a window into what my real heavenly throne and glory are like. Sounds pretty cool, right? And that day... He came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the plans for building the tabernacle, which God said he filled with his glory and his spirit, is tomorrow. But guess what happened on that day? When Moses came down the mountain, what did he find? Were all the people going, praise the Lord, oh yeah, thank you, Moses, this is awesome. They were worshiping what? A golden calf. Why? Because Moses had been gone so long, 40 days. Okay, 40 days. But how many years were they slaves in Egypt? 400. And now they can't even wait. And the guy's up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. There's thunder and lightning, God speaking. They're too afraid to go up there. And and he's getting the drawings of the blueprints for the tabernacle, 40 days. They grew impatient. And therefore they said, we can't wait for him to come down. And so they said, you know, Aaron, make us a God. And he said, well, okay, give me all your gold. And they gave him the gold, they melted it. And he made a God, which they got from Egypt. It was a golden calf. It's one of the Egyptian gods. Oy vey, that's all I can say. (laughs) What? Moses comes down and it's his brother. Aaron, the high priest is his brother. And he sees, I was only gone a little over a month. I have plans from God for the tabernacle. I have tablets with his handwriting about a covenant relationship with us. Are you kidding me? What happened, Aaron? And Aaron says, I don't know. It's original Hebrew. That's what he said. I don't know. They gave me all this gold. They threw it in the fire and this calf came out. And what did Moses, he was so furious. He threw the Ten Commandments down. And they broke in pieces. And God says, hey, buddy, come back up. And he had to go back up the mountain for another 40 days to get another set of the Ten Commandments. That anniversary begins tomorrow. Now, three weeks from now is the next, it's actually in the next month of the Hebrew calendar. If you want to write it down, it's uh, Av, just write down A-V, 
which actually is interesting. In Hebrew, it means father. So it's the month of fathers, but it's of nine. And that will be on July, Sunday, July 18th, exactly three weeks from tomorrow. And that day was also supposed to be an incredibly great, cool day that turned into a great disaster. What happened on the 9th of Av? The 9th of Av is the day, remember that Moses, they're, they're at the edge of the promised land. They're ready to go into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses sent in 12 spies. And they were in there and they're, you know, taking notes and, you know, they're bringing back grapes. In fact, the, the grapes were so big. How big were the grapes? I'll tell you. The grapes were so big and so heavy, they, not one man could not carry the cluster of grapes on his shoulders. They had to have a wooden stave over two men's shoulders because of the weight of the grapes. And I don't know if you know this or not, but if you look at the modern uh, symbol of tourism in Israel is two men with a big thing of grapes in between them. That became the symbol of tourism for Israel, even to modern times. But what happened? They go in there, and when they got back, rather than saying, praise God, it's a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, let's go in. You know what they did? They, 10 of the 12, in King James it says, gave an evil report. Can you imagine? After God took on all the gods of Egypt, after God delivered them from 400 years of slavery, after God brought them through the wilderness, he brought water out of a rock, bread's falling from heaven, they get to the edge of the promised land, they go in and they go, mm-mm, yeah, it's beautiful and all of that, but there's giants. And so let's not go in. And so, you know, here's what I wanna do. I want you to hold your finger and act. Go with me to the Old Testament book of Numbers, Chapter 14. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 14, and beginning in verse 6. So 10 of the spies gave a bad report. They had no faith. But in Numbers, chapter 14, verse 6, it says, But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes when they heard their 10 brothers. They had just given the bad report. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying, now this is only two of the 10. They said, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey, only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So they gave a good report. No, it's a good land. God's with us. He's bigger than those giants. And then we read in verse 10, and all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And then it says, now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. They were so, listen, afraid by Joshua and Caleb's good report, they were with the 10 who said we shouldn't go in because there's giants like Goliath. And so Joshua and Caleb said, no, that, you know, those giants are nothing to us. Those little, you know, compare those giants. Yes, you're comparing giants to us and they are, they're big. But compare the giants not to us, compare those giants to God, the creator of the whole universe. They're little pipsqueak giants. God's gonna go bing. And the people were so angry that they were gonna you know, lead them into the promised land with the giants, they've started picking up stones to stone them. And then all of a sudden, the, the Shekinah, the glory of God began burning like, if you touch Joshua and Caleb, the glory of God's gonna come on you. So they let them alone. Is that wild? So that's what happened on the ninth of Av. Now, here's what's interesting. This three weeks, uh, the same date comes up every year and it's generally in the summer, so it's tomorrow, and three weeks later on July 18th, it ends. 
And if you know this, but many of you probably do not know, most of the worst things that have ever happened to the Jewish people in human history happened in those three weeks. Meaning, their history was, because they had impatience with the true living God and made their own idols, and because they didn't have faith that God could deliver them from earthly giants, the creator of the universe, it set a pattern in motion that every year, for thousands of years, over 3,500 years, so many bad things have happened. Did you know, for instance, that the first temple that was destroyed as they, you know, the Jews are very meticulous about keeping dates. They said the first temple began to be destroyed on the ninth of Av, the very day that the people went with the 10 spies who gave an evil, unfaithful report. The first temple was destroyed years later on that day. Did you know they rebuilt the temple and there was a second temple? And did you know that the second temple was, began to be destroyed on a, the ninth of Av, the day the people went with the 10 who had a bad, evil report, God can't protect us from the giants? Did you know that when the Jews were expelled from England in 1290, it was on the exact same day? Did you know that when the Jews were expelled from Spain, hello, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And by the way, he left with men in his ships on the eve of the ninth of all, when all Jews were kicked out of Spain, which tells us that yes, Columbus, many believe, and the Jewish people say, was Jewish. Although he was not only Jewish, he was a believer in Jesus who wanted to go and share the gospel. Now, this is very, very interesting. Only Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. So here's what I want to say. In our generation, I, here's what I want to do, what I commit as your pastor, your shepherd, and what I want everybody who's with our tribe I do not want to follow, I don't care if even it's the majority, I do not want to follow a report that God is not big enough, he's not faithful, or he's not able to deliver us and to give his promises. I'm with, even if it's a remnant minority, I'm with the Joshua Caleb generation who says God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, he can knock any giant down, and he's with us, and he has magnified his name. Amen? I want you to be with me. You are a Joshua. You are a Caleb. You are of the spirit that will say, God will knock those giants on their keister. That's in the original Hebrew. Anyway, all right. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. So this, what I want to say is this next three weeks is a real history. It's a real three weeks. Let's, uh, and it's, oh, I forgot to tell you this. These three weeks that, that the, you know, we go through every single year. It has another name. It's called the dire straits. Have you ever heard the expression, the dire straits? It comes from the Bible. It comes from those two dates, Tammuz 17, when they worshiped the golden calf, and then when they went with the 10 spies and said, God's not faithful. And by the way, you know what God said? God said, okay, look, I'll let the 10 prevail. I'm not gonna force you to go in the promised land. And you were worried like, oh, we can't go into the promised because our children will get eaten by the giants. And God said, no, you're not going into the promised land. I won't force you. And you know what they did? They went in circles for 40 years and they died in the desert and they never made it into the promised land. But God told Joshua and Caleb, but you and their children will go into the promised land. So let's be among those who are willing to go in. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let's read it out loud. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So oh, here, here's another thing. So every year, this is how our Jewish brothers and sisters, they look at this three weeks that comes every year in the summer and they go, it's, it's like these narrow straits. But they say, don't be afraid. You're, because the narrow three-week window is actually a shortcut to the promised land. 
If you go with eyes of faith, if you go with Joshua and Caleb, it's actually a shortcut where you have all God's divine protection. And God is saying, don't look back. Don't look in the rearview mirror. Don't turn around. Don't go back to the world. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to your past. Don't go back to your idols. But you just keep your eyes fixed on me. And if you will trust me like Joshua and Caleb, you'll find that this narrow passageway bridge is actually a shortcut so you can even faster come into all the blessings that my children shall inherit. Amen? Psalm 32, verse 8. Let's read this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So the, this period of time, summertime, is a time to keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the things of the Spirit. Do not be distracted. Do not look at worldly things, but look at the Lord and keep your eyes on him. So again, I'm going to put this in your notes. The purpose of leading Israel through this narrow, narrow bridge was to be a shortcut to the promised land. So word to the wise for us. Do not make a golden calf. Trust in the Lord and worship him while you wait. All right, let's look at verse 24. It says, and here is, and I'm going to just put this in your notes, the emptiness of worshiping the goddess of sensuality. Look where Paul ends up now. Verse 24, it says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So I want to talk about uh, this man, Apollos, in just a, in a moment, but we don't know how long uh, Paul stayed in Antioch before leaving on his third missionary journey. It was probably about a year or so. Uh, but Luke takes us with Paul, and now we meet this interesting guy, Apollos, in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is, is a magnificent place where Paul started a church, and he was there for three years. This is unheard of. Paul never stayed any place. He was in Corinth a year and a half, but now he's in Ephesus for three full years. One of the strong pillars of the church. By the way, in the book of Revelation, there are seven letters to the churches, and one of the seven letters is to the church of Ephesus. So it's a very, very significant city. But here's what you need to know about Ephesus. It had 300,000 inhabitants. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It had a very large harbor uh, and, and helped it become a wealthy, uh, prosperous, trading city. And it also had a temple of Diana. And the temple of Diana attracted many tourists, many visitors. It was known as one of the wonders of the ancient world. And in the temple stood the sacred image of Diana, also known as Artemis. And it was made of stone that was supposedly fall, fallen from heaven, meaning it was probably an asteroid which is like Satan who fell from heaven. Diana was the fertility goddess. And she was also part of this cultic sensuality, prostitution, sexuality on all levels. And they incorporated their sex into their worship of their gods. And I can't even begin to tell you, we don't, we don't have time tonight, but you know we, we're living in, let, let's talk about Politically, things are crazy. The sexual revolution that started in the 60s and everything where we have come now is just like, oh my goodness. The world, the, America's never been like this. The world, the, the reality is we have been here before. We have, there is nothing new under the sun. 2,000 years ago, I need to tell you what all the sexual explosion of weirdness that we are seeing now, the confusion, uh, the, the gender issues and all the rest of it was, was far, far worse in Corinth and even in Ephesus. And yet in that place, Paul stayed three years. Because as I mentioned recently about Corinth, it was another place, another central city that exploded with salvation. Why? Because the people that had taken the dive into the every desire of the flesh it quickly burns you out. 
There's diminishing returns, psychologically, mentally, uh, and then emotionally, and finally physically, and, and you're at a dead end. And they become very ripe for the gospel of Jesus Christ, deliverance. And there's a lot of demonic stuff that is involved in all of this, uh, witchcraft, occult stuff, demons, and all the rest of it. What's interesting right now, you know, part of the battle that's going on in the world is, uh, you know, they're calling it Marxism, communism, socialism, and they all kind of revolve in the same way. Well, you know who started the whole thing is this guy named Karl Marx. And I'm sure you've heard and know about Karl Marx. Karl Marx was Jewish, and his parents were obviously Jewish, but because they were in Europe and they, they weren't really believers, but they, they kind of said, well, it'd be more better for us in Europe if we were Christian, so they kind of converted on the outside, but it wasn't real and genuine. So finally, Marx said, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't like the Jewish stuff. I don't like the Bible stuff. I don't like the Christian stuff. I don't even like God, but there was one person that he really, really liked and wrote about and loved and admired, and it was the devil. Karl Marx loved the devil. He thought that guy was incredible. He was awesome because he wanted to divorce himself from his, you know, if you have to believe in God, then that means the Jews and Moses and Ten Commandments, laws and rules and restrictions. I don't like that. I'm against that. So he dove headlong into his world of atheism, but he still kind of liked and loved and wrote about the devil. And then he became a critic of Christians and God and of church. We got to get his war on the Christians and the church. And the basic thing was, he goes, why does God have to be bigger and greater than us? I want to be equal with God. So where does that come from? Lucifer. Lucifer said, so this whole thing, so listen very carefully and just in, for a minute, this whole thing, that, this battle going on, look, yeah, hey, there's people that have, and there's other people that don't have, and so that's not fair, and so we should, that basic thought of equality goes back to a fallen angel named Lucifer, who we otherwise know as the devil, and Satan, the adversary, the accuser, the critic of God. The devil started having criticism of God and criticism of God's rules, God's kingdom, God's ways. He was critical about, against God starting in the Garden of Eden. He was critical of what God had set up. And that's where he said, why do you have to be better and bigger than me? I want to be equal with you. So I'll either bring you down or I'll raise up to be equal with you. So Karl Marx one way or another, not that he was a Satan worshiper, but he adopted the philosophy of Lucifer and said, that's how I feel. I'm now in rebellion against anything that God has done or started with his people. He was a Jew who became anti-Semitic, a Jew that hated Jews, among other peoples that he did not like. And he said, therefore, those who have more then us, we have the right, because there's no God, no accountability, no laws. We can destroy whatever they have so that we get what they have so that then we're equal. And that was his goal, and that's the way that he went. He, had, he lived a very miserable life, and those who were around him said there was a darkness and a demonic haunting that followed him throughout his very sad life. And in the end... Two of his daughters, who also became atheists, communists, socialists, Marxists, we believe there is no God, we're equal, we're God, whatever, two of his daughters committed suicide. So what I'm saying is those who are now, yay, the, the answer is equality, Marxism, socialism, communism, the haves and the have-nots, the roots of it and how it manifested in the life of this sad man that started it all Really, the seeds were planted by and with the devil himself. So it's a very, so I do not want to go that way. Can I hear an amen on that? And I think it's kind of obvious we're not God. And that there is somebody who created us. And whoever created us is bigger and better in a good way and all powerful. 
and we owe him. And here's what's good about the one who did create us. He is good, he's loving, he's kind, he's patient. He he loves us so much he's willing to send his son from heaven to become one of us, to sacrifice himself on a cross in order that he might forgive us, adopt us as his own sons and daughters, and then spoil us in his kingdom for all of time and eternity. I'm good with that. Amen? Okay, verses 25 through 28, and we'll close. It says, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So we're back to Apollos. Being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So here it is, the whole gospel for the whole world. They met a guy, his name was Apollos. He was a really good preacher and a really good teacher, but all he knew was John the Baptist, repent, because the Messiah is coming soon. So Priscilla and Aquila listened to his Bible study and they went, he doesn't know. So they didn't do anything, they didn't disturb the meeting, but afterwards they said, hey, come to our house. So he came to their house and they said, we have good news. He goes, what? Well, the Messiah you said is coming? He came and he already lived. And he goes, what? Who, when, what happened? And he didn't know anything about Jesus. So they filled in the blanks. And as soon as he did that, he he believed in Jesus, and then he went back out and now began to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. Amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.